This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'm going to look at, once again, God's character and His promises. But before I get into that, I'd like to apologize for something. Twice now in the podcast, I have misquoted a misquote. <laughs> well, shame on me. I was referring to John chapter 8, verse 32. It's something that Jesus said and is very, very often misquoted, and here I misquoted it myself. But you'll see what I mean. A quick search on the internet shows many photographs and posters and even movies with the partial quote, The truth shall set you free. And that comes from John chapter 8, verse 32. Most people don't even know who originated that phrase or what it truly means. And we'll come across it from time to time in a non-Christian setting. And I've even heard it misquoted in a Christian context. Believers not fully quoting Jesus and therefore not giving the full meaning of what he said. Well, what I apologize for is that I misquoted what is written above the entrance to the main building on the campus of the University of Texas in Austin. I think twice I've misquoted that, and I finally decided to do what I should have done before I said anything, which was to look up what is actually on the building. I had misremembered it. For those of you who don't know, I attended university there for several years in Austin, so I went by that building often, but I misremembered what it says there. In this podcast, I said that the inscription reads, The truth shall set you free. But that's not correct. What is engraved in stone on that building is, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So I apologize for misquoting what is written there. But I did a little more research today on it and found something that was kind of interesting. It took my thoughts a little further down this path once again. And I discovered that Dr. William Battle, who was the chairman of the faculty building committee, I believe it was in the 1930s. This main building on the campus has a tall tower, and also there's a building at the base of this tower, and that served as the primary administration building for the university at the time, and also as the university library. And they were looking for a quote to put on that building, and there were several things that were suggested. And when the building committee decided to use John chapter 8, verse 32, Dr. William Battle wrote, Truth and freedom are so essentially the foundation of education, character, and progress that the injunction to seek truth as a means of freedom is as splendid a call to youth as we can make. Its form is perfect, its source is not a drawback, and it has the weight of nearly 2,000 years' acceptation. End quote. So Dr. Battle, who was a scholar of Greek and on the faculty there at the University of Texas, he said that truth and freedom are so essentially the foundation of education, character, and progress. However, honestly, there is no truth or freedom apart from obedience to Jesus. Jesus himself is actually the foundation of education, character, and progress. He is the way. What Jesus really said is found starting in verse 31. If you hold to my teaching, 
you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So there is a condition attached by Jesus to being set free by the truth. That truth is not found in books in a library. That truth that sets people free is not something that we come to apart from living out the teachings of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus. And that means to surrender our own lives to him, to fully surrender our minds to him, to his teaching, and our lives to walking with him as disciples. And Jesus says this is the condition for knowing the truth and then being set free. Only by walking with Jesus can we know the truth, and only then will we be set free. And anything else is bondage, even if it feels like freedom. So hopefully in the future I won't misquote the misquote, but still the meaning remains. We really need to commit ourselves to holding to the teachings of Jesus, to abiding in his teachings, to keeping his teachings. Okay, another thing I'd like to mention before I get into the discussion about God's character and promises is a talk that I recently gave on Breakthrough Insights. I got some good feedback about that, and I thought that I would invite you to share with me Breakthrough Insights that you've had. So, if you're inclined, you can send me a note at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc, send an email there, with your Breakthrough Insights. What are those scriptures or moments of clarity, things that have really shown you the truth, the deep truth of the Lord that have affected your heart in a very, very important way? Hopefully I can share those in a future talk. I will return to that topic for my own Breakthrough Insights, but I think it'd be good to hear from other people too. Well, let's move on now to a discussion about God's character and his promises. This is now the fourth time that I've come to this topic. And it's very, very important because I learned as a young believer that often my faith was not really in God. My faith was in myself. I was putting too much faith in my ability to do God's will or my ability to even understand God's will. So there is this question, where is our faith? Why is the discussion about God's character and his promises so important? Well, where is our faith? Our faith should not be in our ability to understand or to do the will of God, because we are imperfect. In and of ourselves, we will fail. We're not dependable, and our faith should not be in ourselves or our abilities. If you think you're not able to hear from the Lord, then you may be putting your faith in yourself, depending on your ability to hear, instead of putting your faith in his ability to speak clearly. Well, of course, You're weak, and I am too. We all are. And we all fall short of the glory of God, and we should not put our faith in ourselves or in our abilities. Our faith must be in God, in his character, who he is. Our faith is in him, who he is, and his promises, what he has said. Those things never change. We change. We're weak. But the character and the promises of God, they're eternal and they're dependable. So we need to put our faith in him. Well, I'll recap a little bit what I've said before and then move into some new things. One question is what defines God's character? 
And it doesn't really matter what we think about God, what we think about who he is and what he's like. A lot of people all through time have expressed their thoughts about how God ought to be. And my goodness, that's happening a lot right now. People will pick and choose from the scriptures what they like about God, and they'll discard the things that they don't like. Entire religions have been created because human beings have layered their own ideas onto the God that they worship. But what's important is, how does God reveal himself? What does he say about himself? How does he reveal his character? What promises do we find in the Bible? What he says about himself reveals his character. What we think about his character and what his character should be has nothing to do with it. We have to be humble and receive what he says. Now, I've mentioned a few things about his character that have been very helpful to me. There are three things about his character that, for me, go together, and they're very, very helpful to me as I contemplate and depend on his character. First, God brings order from chaos. That's the creative aspect of our God. All the way from the very beginnings of the scripture, we see that he brings order from chaos. That's in this physical world, and he does it in the spiritual world, too. And my goodness, in the emotional world, as far as that goes, God loves to bring order from chaos. He is a creative, orderly God. Second, God is a redeemer. He loves to redeem things that are lost, things that are bound up in slavery. He loves to redeem those things. He will redeem your life. Even years that we feel like have been lost, he can redeem those years. Third, Our God loves to bring life from death. He is a God of life. And there is so much in the Bible about his character of bringing life from death. When Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days and is beginning to rot away and stink, (laughs) that's a pretty hopeless situation. But Jesus loves to bring life from death. Our God brings life from death. I also spoke about God's wisdom and his faithfulness and his love. If you want to hear more about those things, go back and listen to the previous episodes. I also spoke about his justice, his mercy, and his grace. And just quickly, I'll recap this because it's quite helpful to me. And these three things, I don't know that you can say they go together, but it's really good to talk about them together. Justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we do not get what we deserve, and grace is when we get what we do not deserve. And God is all of those things. He is just and merciful and gracious. In his justice, he's the ultimate judge over the lives and the actions of men. God is going to judge everything. And remember, his justice means that he cannot be persuaded or bribed. When there are evil acts, justice demands a penalty, and there is a judgment day coming. So hallelujah for that. But God is also merciful. I shouldn't have said but. I'll say and. And God is merciful. And the scriptures show that so clearly. Ephesians 2.4, God is rich in mercy. Mercy is when we do not get what we deserve. God's justice is satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus. And because of that, 
God is free to show mercy to those who have chosen to follow Jesus. And God's mercy will never end, since that's a part of his nature. Mercy is the way that he desires to relate to mankind. James chapter 2 tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's really good news. And God is gracious. Well, what is grace when we get what we do not deserve? In Romans 5, it says the free gift is not like the offense. Where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. And when we speak of God's grace, we speak of his beautiful and wonderful gifts that no man deserves, but that God gives anyway. In John chapter 1, verse 17, we read, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. So now I'll move on to some new things, a couple of new things about God's character. And I want to mention today his goodness. Our God is good. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, The Lord, the Lord God, the merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Boy, look at that. There's so much there about the character of God. He is merciful and gracious. He's patient. He's abounding in goodness. He's abounding in truth. He's abounding in mercy for thousands. Psalm 25, verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Amen. Our God is good and he's upright. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God gives good gifts. He doesn't give bad things. He's good. He's really, really good. And this is why he bestows all these blessings on his followers, because he's good. His actions even define what goodness is. And we can see his goodness in the way that Jesus related to the people around him. To be so considerate and careful, to speak the truth in love, to provide relief for the suffering, to provide hope for the hopeless. This was the ministry of Jesus, and it's very good. Think through history of all the powerful leaders in world history and how that power was so often used to destroy people, to bring suffering and hopelessness and death into cultures. Jesus had all this power, more than any other human who's ever walked the earth, and it was always used for good, always used for good. Even when he was confronting people, who were not speaking the truth, and people who were misleading others, he was using his wisdom and his power, his insight, for good. God is good. Our God is very good. I heard somebody talking the other day about discipline, when we discipline our children. And this applies to us as well, when God disciplines us, like it says in the book of Hebrews. If we want to change, if we want to be different, if we know that we're wrong and we need to be corrected, then we welcome God's discipline. But if we don't want to change, if we want to keep going on the path we've been on, then when he disciplines us, it'll feel like he doesn't like us. (laughs) 
it'll feel like punishment. But it's not. He's being good to us. He's being considerate. He's doing the right thing. But if we're stiff-necked, then his discipline will feel like punishment, maybe even hatred. But I'm telling you, God is good. He is always good. And if you've got any hardship in your life, a good, loving father is allowing that to do his work in your life. So let us not be a people that complain against him or even presume wrongly about his character. We might even tend to think, well, he's mostly good, but sometimes he's pretty bad. No, our God is good. He is really, really good. And we need to trust that he, more than we, knows the very best thing for us. And if he allows hardships in our lives, that's because he knows that we can get through those hardships with him that those difficulties will make us more like him and prepare us for eternity. And if he allows blessings in our lives, we shouldn't be proud and assume that he's blessing us because we're good. No, he's good. He's being gracious to us. He's giving us things that we don't deserve. So when things are going really, really well for us, let's always be thankful and let's always be giving and let's always love him more than the blessings that he gives us. Amen. Our God is good. And don't you forget it. (laughs) The next thing I want to talk about is his sovereignty. God is sovereign. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Especially in the West, and particularly for Americans, I think, we have an idea that our leaders are elected representatives of the people. And when we vote for a leader, he is beholding to us. And certainly in the American system and in democracies generally, the sovereignty of a nation is found in the people. But I'm telling you, the sovereignty of the kingdom of heaven is not found in the people. It is found in God. It's found in the sovereign. He has all the authority. In America, we have a phrase, a public servant that an elected official is there to serve the public. But I'm telling you, God is not there to serve us, to do our will, to do what pleases us. He does whatever he wants to do. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. God is completely sovereign. In Matthew 10, 29, there's a statement of the sovereignty of God. Something that's familiar to us, but we may not think that it is a statement of the complete and absolute sovereignty of God. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. I used to think that that scripture meant that God knows about every sparrow. And he knows what's going on everywhere. But what Jesus says is nothing happens apart from his will, not just his knowledge, but his will. He allows sparrows to fall to the ground. He allows everything. Nothing is happening in this world, in all of creation, not just this world, but in the spiritual realm as well. Nothing is happening that is apart from his will. He allows it to happen. He allows evil for now, but that's not always going to be the case, and we have to remember that. But for now, he allows it to happen. 
Remember in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Satan had to ask permission to give people a hard time. Satan went to God and asked for permission to give Job difficulties. God gave permission. And in the New Testament, Jesus said that Satan had asked to sift Peter. And God gave him that permission. (laughs) If we're having a hard time, if we are under the attack of evil forces, you know what? God's given permission for that to happen. I'm sorry if that challenges your theology, but it's true. God is sovereign over all. In Romans 9, verse 15, we read, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. That is a statement of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty tells us of God's divine control over everything that happens. There is nothing outside the control of his loving hand. Not even the designs of the evil and the wicked. And this includes the plans of history's most evil dictators. Not the way the earth itself works, seemingly against the lives of men like floods and earthquakes and things like that. Nothing is outside the control of his loving hand, not even the workings of evil spirits. I had a real revelation of this soon after I moved to Russia. The sovereignty of God really stood out to me. In the United States, I'd never come across this, but I was visiting the Hermitage, which is in the Winter Palace. It's a beautiful big museum in what was the Winter Palace of the Russian Tsars. And in the palace, there are two throne rooms. There's the small throne room and a big one. The small throne room, which was used for more intimate meetings with the Tsar. Oh, and by the way, the word Tsar, the Russian word Tsar, comes from the word that English speakers know as the word Caesar, the king. Uh, The German king was known as the Kaiser, the Caesar So I was passing through the small throne room in the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, Russia. And there was the throne, the actual throne upon which sat the king of Russia. And it struck me, finally, it had never really been a part of my experience, that here is a chair, the throne, a beautiful, beautiful chair, upon which no one can sit except the king. Only the king can sit on that chair. And the person who sits on that chair has complete authority over the realm of his kingdom. Total sovereignty over the realm. And that sovereignty extends even to the power of life and death over his subjects. It was awesome. As I stood there, I realized, wow, If I came into this room and the king sat on the throne, the king had complete sovereignty over my life. And the king would have every right to say to the servants around him, kill that man who stands in front of me. The king would have every right to do that because he's sovereign. But the king could also say, give this man many lands and much wealth. And that would be done. Because the king is sovereign, has full authority. 
And our God is sovereign. He's the king. He has authority. And it is awesome authority. He has complete authority over your life. He has complete, absolute authority over everything that you've experienced. Everything that you experience in your life is under his sovereignty. And I'll tell you what, this sovereign Lord loves you. And he will do all that he can to give you abundant life. In this sense, our sovereign Lord is on our side. He loves his subjects. That said, there are rebellious subjects to the king. There are people that are rebellious to God or don't recognize his sovereignty. And, you know, things are going to be pretty hard for them in the age to come. We don't live under a system of the yin and the yang, the more Eastern understanding of these forces of darkness and light that are equal and balance one another. That is not the Christian understanding of creation. God is not equal to Satan, and these two forces don't balance one another. God is sovereign over Satan, and for a while allows Satan to have some authority, but it's not complete, and it's not everlasting. Some of you will be familiar with the Star Wars movies. Well, there they have the force, but it's balanced with the dark side, these two sides of this power that permeates that universe. But we don't live under that kind of a system. God's sovereignty is complete, and his sovereignty is a comfort to the believer. No matter how chaotic any situation may seem, we need not fear, for God is still in charge, and he is still on his throne. God is good, and he is sovereign. Or let's put it in the other direction. God is sovereign, and he is really good. So we have hope. There's nothing to be afraid of. If we love him and abide in him and submit ourselves to him, we have a very good, sovereign God. Well, let's move on to some promises here. And as I've mentioned multiple times in the past, his promises have power. These are not just things that God says that are comforting to us in a certain way, but don't really affect us. His promises have power. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say, quote, His divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Well, there's goodness again. And through these, verse 4, through his own glory and goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them, through the promises of God, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God gives us promises so that through those promises, we can participate in his nature and escape the corruption that's in this world. I'll add to my list of things I'm going to talk about in the future. Uh, this corruption that is in the world now that seems to be accelerating pretty dramatically. And this corruption is caused by evil desires. Even leaders in Christian churches are teaching corruption. And they are led into that corruption by their own evil desires. And they are deceived. And they deceive others. But God has given us his promises so that we can escape all that. 
He wants us out of those traps. He wants us to flee from those snares. And his promises come from his own glory and goodness. The source of his promises is his glory, his goodness. Now, very often God's promises have conditions. He doesn't promise the same thing to every person. And this is one of the traps of universalism that we'll find when some people claiming to be Christians talk about God's unconditional love for everyone. Well, in one sense, there is something there. God does love everyone, but there are conditions to participating in his love. Well, I think I'll revisit one that I mentioned before as an example of God's promises having conditions. Matthew 6, 6 is a very familiar and Often, I will turn to this myself personally, and also when I'm counseling others. Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Well, that's a promise. If I may misquote it briefly, your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. That's a promise. But actually, that sentence begins with then, which implies an if. It's an if-then promise, like so many of them are. Jesus says, when you pray, you go into your room and you close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. If you do that, then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Related to that is actually one of my breakthrough insights probably talk about it again, but I'll mention it here for sure. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, boy, this was such a help to me as a young believer. This is what it says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Well, this is related to what I just talked about in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father who sees what is done in secret will reward us. What was so helpful to me in Hebrews 11, at first I was a little discouraged. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it's like, man, I want to be a man that has faith. But thankfully, God says we don't have to have a lot of faith. All we need is the faith the size of a mustard seed. So it doesn't take a lot. But here's the thing that was so helpful to me. Anyone who comes to God must believe two things, that he exists. And I thought when I was a young believer, well, I believe that he exists. And the second thing is that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. And as a young believer, I thought, well, do I really believe that? That God really does reward those who earnestly seek him? And at that moment, God gave me what I think is the gift of faith, the spiritual gift of faith. And it just went deep in my heart. You know what? God really does reward those who earnestly seek him. So I need to earnestly seek him because he promises the reward. And man, I was so hungry for him and so aware of my need for him. And when I read this scripture, it just really went deep in. God is a God who rewards people who seek him. That is a beautiful promise. That is not only a promise, it's an expression of his character. I'll tell you, if you really need to touch the Lord, if you really need to hear his voice, You go into a secret place, and you earnestly seek him, and God will reward you. Seek him. We shouldn't be seeking our own pleasure or our own release. Seek 
him, and he'll reward you. He certainly will. Well, moving on to Romans 8:28, we find a scripture that is quite often misquoted and misunderstood. Here's what it says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Well, where is the misunderstanding in that? This can be used, and it has been used, to sort of give a blanket blessing to all of creation, to everyone. God works everything for the good. Well, we may be talking to somebody who's having a hard time and say, you know, God works it all for the good. But that's not what this says, and it really struck me years ago. God works for the good for those who love him and for those who have been called according to his purpose. And I remember thinking, well, if I want everything in my life to work for good, then I need to love God and I need to be called according to his purpose and walk in his calling. My part of this blessing is to love him. And of course, loving him is doing what he says. It's surrendering our lives for him. Loving him is abiding in him, letting go of ourselves. That's what love is. So there's that promise. For those who love God and who have been called according to his purpose, in everything, God works for the good. Another promise that I want to look at is found in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's look in here again at the conditions. First of all, there's a commandment. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. That is a commandment. That's not a suggestion. This is not a feel-good greeting card idea. It's actually a commandment. It's one of the many commandments we find in the New Testament under the New Covenant. And God's commandment to you is, do not be anxious about anything. (laughs) Can you be obedient to that? Set your heart to it and ask the Lord to help you be obedient. Ask him to give you his spirit so that by his power, you'll stop being anxious. Don't try to gut it out and do it yourself because you're going to fail. Ask him to teach you this lesson. Ask him to give you the gift of obedience. And in every situation, pray and ask God. Be thankful. Always be thankful. Don't grumble. And here comes the promise, verse 7. This then will lead to the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. And that peace will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. There's a promise. If we present our requests to God in prayer and petition with thankful hearts, then God is going to give us a peace that goes beyond our minds, that goes beyond our ability to understand the gift. And that peace is going to be a guard, a shepherd, or a hedge, or a wall around our hearts and our minds. Amen. That's a really good promise. But it's not going to come out of nothing. We need to go to him, and we need to be thankful to him. Even in the midst of terrible things, we need to be thankful to him. 
I keep mentioning the bad times because so many people are suffering hardships. But you know what? If you find yourself in a golden time of life, work hard to have a thankful heart. And work hard not to let those blessings stop with you. God blesses us for our good, but also so that those blessings would flow through to other people. Amen. Well, continuing on, I'll say again that one of his promises is judgment. I guess the reason that I mention judgment every time is people may tend to think that God is like a big teddy bear or a source of things that make us feel good and that his promises always lead us to feeling good about things and are always really positive. And they're good, of course, but he also promises judgment. There are Christians now who don't believe in hell. They don't believe in eternal judgment. But that's not what Jesus said. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the one who teaches us the most about eternal judgment. Luke 12, verses 8 and 9, there's one example. So here's a promise of the Lord Jesus, our sovereign, good God. I tell you, he says, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. Well, that's awesome. And that'll bring the fear of the Lord to me. This is what Jesus says. If we acknowledge him here on earth before men, then he's going to acknowledge us before the angels. But if we disown him, then he's going to disown us. So let's acknowledge him. What a beautiful thing it will be to be acknowledged by Jesus before the angels of God. God also promises his Holy Spirit, and this is one of the most beautiful and amazing promises. It's unlike any other world religion. It's unlike any other covenant in our Bible. The giving of the Holy Spirit is the primary part of this new covenant. I did a series on the covenants of God. If you'd like to know more about those things, please go back and listen to those. In Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, Jesus says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Wow, there are just so many beautiful promises here. Ask, it'll be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, the door's going to be opened for you. We know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more will our Father, who is in heaven, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We need to have a childlike faith, trusting the promises of a loving Father and that what He says is true. We don't need to understand everything or why He does the things that He does or the way that He does them why in his sovereignty he allows certain things. We don't need to understand all that. We need only to abide in him 
to trust him, to listen for his voice, and to follow him. God promises that he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That is remarkable. That's amazing. It's really, really so comforting and great. So brothers and sisters, let us have that childlike faith that we just trust our loving Father to do what he says he's going to do. And remember, our faith should not be in our own weakness. Our faith is not in our ability to hear well. Our faith is in him. Our faith is in his strength, in his character. Our faith is in his promises. So until next time, my friends, I pray that God will continue to reveal to you his word and his ways because his pathways are always good and they lead to peace for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening and God bless you all.